Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mari Judah. This particular portion is not just a narrative of events that take place. It's an actual conversation between the living God and our father Abraham. And in this conversation that transpires, we get a sense of our father. We get a sense of our heavenly father in dimensions that if someone were just to sit and explain the characteristics of God, I'm not sure we would get it. But in by listening in and, and being a witness to this conversation that is about to take place, something I believe only by the Spirit of God and by the wisdom of God is able to reach into our souls and touch us and give us a glimmer, a sense of the, this spiritual world, the spiritual life, and this wonderful God that we have come to know. Follow along with me now as we read this short little conversation that begins to take place between Abraham and the Lord, beginning at Genesis chapter 18 at verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth, and he said, My Lord, If now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have been visited, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men arose from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with him to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he had spoken about him. And the Lord said, 
the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him yet again, and he said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak, Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Like I said before, this passage of Scripture is a lot of dialogue. And there's really kind of two conversations here, but they're interlinked. First, we have the Lord being invited to Abraham's area for lunch, and then the Lord shares with Abraham certain things that he's on the way to do, which is to go judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the first part of this passage in Genesis 18 is not the thing that most people recall from the Bible. They don't specifically recall this particular lunch. Oh, they know that God made a promise to Abraham about having a son, and we talked about that covenantal promise that was made in the last portion, the covenant with Abraham. But they don't really get into the details. But boy, this little negotiation thing about from 50 to 10 and Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody remembers that. I mean, even the heathen know about that story. They know that God went down and judged Sodom and Gomorrah and that Abraham uh, negotiated uh, for the number of righteous, but it turns out there wasn't 10 there. And we kind of, most of us in our education and those who are familiar with the story, they chuckle a little bit about, you know, the Abraham, the first Hebrew, the first Jew, if you will, and his negotiating skills with the Almighty to get from 50 to 10. And that's what we tend to remember about this story. One of the reasons that I uh, like this particular passage of Scripture, and in particular when I am 
sharing and teaching about the study of Torah, the reason I like this is because this is one of those scriptures that lends itself to what I call the questioning technique of how you learn scripture, how you learn from the Lord. The Lord intentionally writes the scripture and gives it to us to produce within us natural questions. And in fact, that's how we learn. If he were to just explain everything to us, carte blanche, every fact, every detail, lay it out in perfect sequence, it would just go through your brain right out the other side and you wouldn't get anything. But by writing it in the way he does, by telling the story, by dialoguing with us, he causes us naturally, because he knows how we're wired and how we work and so forth, to ask questions. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Verse 1 of chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Everybody can see that. You see that picture? You know, it's kind of in the middle of the day. You know, you can see, you look off in the horizon, you can kind of see the heat kind of waving up from the distance. And you can see Abraham kind of sitting there. Let's not move too fast. Let's just stay in the shade here. Everybody knows how to stay in the shade and what that feeling's like versus get out in the sunlight, right? And we're sitting there, and, and, and we're all captured. We're, we're sitting there with Abraham there, and, and it says, And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And we're immediately confronted with, who, who is this? Who is this? But let me take you back to a more natural question. Why does the Scripture say he looked up? I mean, if we're just telling the story... I mean, let's sit down with Moses. We're counseling with Moses. He's going to write the Torah, and he's going to tell this story. And so well, I, I wouldn't word it quite that way, Moses. I would just say he saw the three guys. What do you mean he was sitting there and he looked up? Why was he looking down? Why is Abraham sitting there looking down? It's important, brethren. And you need to ask the question and get an answer because it's going to help you to understand what's getting ready to take place. Let me give you the simple and quick answer. If you look back just in the previous passage, there in Genesis 17, what did the Lord tell Abraham to do? Well, let's read that again real quickly. 17, chapter 17, verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money for any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall thy covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And it proceeds then to say, in fact, there's a conversation here that is getting ready to be perpetuated in chapter 18. Let me, let me read it for you again because I want you to take note. There's a little more going on here. Verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son 
by her, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, and kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. You remember we were reading Genesis 18, you know, the conversation, and, and she laughed. He laughed. She laughs. There's some things happening that are connected here. And the thing I want you, the first thing I want you to take note of, here is Abraham sitting in the heat of the day. And according to the traditional teaching, it is three days after the circumcision. Three days. He don't feel like moving. In fact, he don't even feel like looking up. He's sitting there contemplating what has happened what is the Lord doing I'm trying to obey the Lord but what are, what are you doing Lord I have this covenant with you what does it mean how does it work what do we do now you've given me a promise you said I'm going to have a son how do I explain that to my wife my wife is old I'm old you said it would be by her and by me. How, how do I explain this great destiny that you've given to me, Lord? So it appears that the Lord comes to help him in his household. He comes to share with his household this promise directly with Sarah, what the Lord is going to be doing. And so it says he looked up. And I want you to capture for the moment How does Abraham feel at this moment? He has all the effects, the weaknesses, all the things of having just recently been circumcised. And so he goes out to greet the Lord. And there is no question in this scripture that Abraham is treating these three visitors as though they are the Lord. A little bit of a quandary for some of my uh, Jewish brethren uh, particularly the sages of Israel, because uh, you can imagine the rabbinical tradition here. You know, we've got the Lord, you know, coming to meet Abraham. And how does he show up as three persons? Oh, my goodness. Do you understand the theological implications of even saying such things? That God is in three parts walking up to Abraham and talking. To him. I mean, last portion, we talked about how God made three parts of the covenant, how the first part was labeled after the father how that he had to come out of his father's house, how the second part was after the part about a son, a promised son, and about sacrifice. And the third part was about circumcision. It was a seal. And so we have the illustration of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, the seal. And so he's made this agreement. Now God comes walking up to Abraham as three persons. Do you understand the theological implications here? Let me just, for the sake of discussion, tell you how the sages of Israel try to explain this natural question away. Well, it wasn't really the Lord. It was three archangels. They say it was Michael, it was Gabriel, and it was Raphael. And they say that angels are dispatched on singular missions, and that's the reason why we had to have three of them come here to do business with Abraham, because one was coming to make an announcement, one was coming to do a healing, and one was going down into Sodom and Gomorrah and going to do the thing down there, so we had to have three. Well, that doesn't really hold out very well. It doesn't hold a lot of water, because Abraham keeps referring to him as the Lord. And there is a future, a, another reference in which that God 
make specific mention to Moses about this visitation in which that God says to Moses, and when I appeared unto Abraham, there were certain things about me he did not know. In fact, he did not know the name that I've given you, Moses. And that thus lays the principles that God is in the business of manifesting himself to us. We know God's in the business of manifesting himself to the patriarchs. We can read it right here and we can see it progressively working through. And we can see the whole pattern of God progressively trying to manifest himself to man. And we see this great plan of God unfolding. And in this case, we're going to see a little bit more of the plan unfolding for Abraham, and he's dialoguing, and he's learning, and he's coming to terms with it, and thus by us paying attention to this passage, we can learn a lot of things about the Lord that affects us even today. Now, Abraham goes out and proceeds to invite the Lord to um, come under the shade and to have some lunch. And interestingly enough... Um, as time goes on, this event is actually going to be the dominant thing that will be used by the descendants of Abraham to describe our father Abraham. The, the, the watchword, the key words that we use to describe our father Abraham, even Yeshua makes reference to this, is that Abraham's greatest works was known for his hospitality. Now, we call him the father of faith, and we have the covenants and so forth, but they say that this particular deed is what will mark Abraham's life, and the message is trying to be conveyed to all the descendants of Abraham about this act of hospitality. Abraham invites the Lord to come have lunch with him. Now, he, if you'll notice, he humbly describes his invitation. Oh, come, just uh, uh, sit under the shade, rest a bit, uh, let us bring some water, we'll wash your feet, and let me bring you a piece of bread. But what, in fact, does he do? Why does he then run off to his wife? And he says, Sarah, you know those real special um, cakes that you make for me? I mean, the really good ones? Get some of the finest flour that you've got. Need those. You make those cakes again, would you? Please, make those cakes for our guests. Not just any cakes, the ones you make, Sarah. You know, those really good ones that you make. I really want to show some hospitality here. And then he goes out into the herd. He doesn't just say to some servant, uh, why don't we have a meat dish to go with us? No, he goes out and he chooses what he thinks will be the best calf of his herd. And then directs his servants immediately, prepare this as quickly as you possibly can. Bring this quickly. And he doesn't stop there. It comes with the trimmings. It says, what is set before the Lord is the calf, the curds of milk, and these cakes, these bread cakes made by Sarah. And so this is not just your average lunch. This is a very special lunch in which that Abraham is trying to do his utmost to prepare a lunch that will be enjoyable by them. In fact, it goes on to say, even he himself does not sit down to consume it with him. He's standing back, still remaining as a servant. Just, you know, give them a little privacy. Let them just enjoy it. You know, don't don't bug them, you know, while they're eating. Don't bother them. So you don't hear Abraham trying to dialogue with them or care. Let, Let them have some space so they can eat it and enjoy it. 
And it's the Lord, while he's eating the lunch, that actually begins to dialogue. So you have this contrast. Why does he say to them in a very humble way, come, just let me do a few things? But in fact, he does a lot of things. Why does he go out of his way to extend this hospitality to them? This is also another huge uh, theological quandary for the sages of Israel and the rabbinical courts. Because Abraham serves milk and dairy at the same moment. And in rabbinical kosher, this is an absolute no-no. You do not serve dairy and meat at the same time. You know the commandment that says you shall not boil the kid in the mother's milk. And here is Abraham serving meat and dairy in the same meal. Now, is it that Abraham didn't understand kosher? No, I think he understood what was fit and proper before the Lord, and I think he put the best lunch out possible. I think maybe the sages don't quite understand what those dietary laws and what those kosher laws are really about. I think they've added to them a little bit, and they've messed them up. And if we would pay attention to the example of Abraham, I think we'd have a lot of clarity here on how to obey the Lord properly, how to present ourselves properly before the Lord. And so he serves for the first time, you can write that down here, the first cheeseburger that was um, ever served in the Bible. So the Lord is having this wonderful lunch. And um, and then all of a sudden the Lord says, uh, Abraham, where, where's Sarah, your wife? And I love this particular part. Um, and he said, well, behold, uh, she, she's in the tent. She's, she's here. But she's more than just here. She is right on the other side of the canvas of, the, of this tent, whether it was canvas or goat's hair, probably goat's hair, right on the other side so she can hear every word of whatever may be taking place in this conversation. And the Lord knows that. Abraham knows that. Sarah doesn't know that, though. <laughs> and so then he announces that he's there, and the Lord says, okay, I have some word for Sarah. Sarah is going to have a child this time next year. You know, the promise that I gave to you, Abraham, that you would have a son. And... Sarah laughs. I being old and my husband being old, we will have a son. I, I will be young again to, enough to have a son. And in fact, if I could, let me point out the exact uh, wording that she says. It's kind of noteworthy. <clears throat> Verse 12 Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? I mean, she would love to have one. She's always wanted one. This would be wonderful. This would be great. But how can such things be? How can they possibly be? How can I be young again? How can I have the life and the vitality and in my body and so forth so that that, that, that could happen. Now, I want to ask you a question, and that's the reason why I like this passage, because 
You remember I read to you before, it says over there in chapter 17, that says they announced it to Abraham, and Abraham heard this and he laughed. Only Abraham didn't get in trouble with the Lord about that. It says Abraham laughed. And it doesn't say that the Lord chastised Abraham and said, Abraham, why are you laughing? But when Sarah laughs, the Lord says, why did you laugh, Sarah? Now, what is this? We got a double standard here. You know, Abraham can laugh, but Sarah can't laugh. You know, what is that? I mean, both of them laugh. And by the way, it's real significant because Isaac means he laughs. I mean, the name of the son is he laughs. So obviously, laughing is part of this thing. What, what's going on? Why, why is it he laughs and it's okay and she laughs and it's not okay? Well, if you go back and you examine a little bit further, it says he laughed out of pure exuberance. <laughs> I mean, this is great. <laughs> and then he gets to thinking about it. And he says, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lord. What about Ishmael? You know, I have a son. What, what about him? And he's concerned for Ishmael. He's concerned for another. But with this time when Sarah laughs, and she's doing it secretly because she's hiding back there, she, um, and she's confronted with that, she denies it. She's not thinking about others. She's trying to hide this. I mean, she's trying to hide the truth. She's trying to hide the fact that she don't believe it. I mean, it would be wonderful, but I don't believe it. And so she's trying to deny her faith. Whereas Abraham is truly trying to see the best. How can, how can my descendants get the best benefit? What about Ishmael? What about him? Doesn't he get a blessing? And so there's a big difference between the two. And the difference is that she's in denial and the Lord wants to address that. And I think that's probably the reason why the Lord came to tell her. I don't, I think Abraham kind of knew that, you know, how in the world do I explain this to Sarah? And he probably had kind of avoided the subject. And so the Lord showed up to cover that with her. And so what we have is uh, this very interesting contrast that sets up. And the questions don't, don't stop there. Then Abraham, after completing this lunch, somehow or another is permitted to negotiate with the living God, and he's about ready to go do some business in the world. And somehow or another, God permits Abraham to get in a dialogue with God about what God is actually going to do. Now, we know that the Lord doesn't take the counsel of other men. So what what is really going on here? Obviously, it's not that God needs the counsel of Abraham to figure out what to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's maybe that he's trying to give something to Abraham so he'll understand what's going on. In fact, that's what he you hear God asking. God says, shall we not tell him? Shall we not tell him what is about to happen? Isn't he part of us? Isn't Haven't we chosen him to be the father of many, to serve us? Surely we should tell him. And they want him to know. They want him to be engaged in this. And so it's not just a case of of Abraham is uh, shrewdly 
you know, trying to negotiate with the Lord for the number of righteous. And it, it's the Lord has wants Abraham to be involved in this. He wants him to be aware of what is getting ready to happen. And I, the negotiation is, uh, the study of the negotiation is, is uh, very fascinating. <coughs> Why 50? Why, why start the bidding at 50? And why, why does it drop to 45, then to 40, 30, 20, and finally at 10? What, what kind of negotiation is this? What, what is going on here? You know, what is the thought that's going into why we asked for that at that point and, and so forth? And it's obvious the Lord wants Abraham to be engaged in this conversation, and Abraham is willing to do it. First of all, you know, how in the world did he ever get the, um, let me use one of those big Hebrew words, chutzpah, to ever even start this negotiation with it? You know, where, where, what, what, where did he get the confidence to do that? I mean, you know, why didn't he just kind of sit there and listen? What, what made him well up and think that he could discuss this with the Lord? And then why would he choose the number 50? Let's break it down just a little bit. This is where we have one of the strongest biblical principles that you need to write on the margin of your Bible, brethren, that goes right up there with the other ones that we learned from Abraham. Faith is counted for righteousness. Obedience produces blessing. Let me write down the third one about that we learned from Abraham. Hospitality leads to intercession. You want to intercede on behalf of brethren? You want to be involved in the ministry of the Lord? You want to do the work of the ministry? You want to go out and be involved in other people's lives? Then you better learn the lesson and start doing the works of Abraham and start showing some hospitality. Start putting your best effort out for the benefit of others. Because the Lord wants nothing less than the best, your best. You are not going to work effectively in the ministry if you're not willing to show hospitality. Did you know that it is a requirement written for us in the New Testament? You cannot have a man into the position of eldership or leadership unless he has a testimony of being hospitable. It's written in there. It says, is he a hospitable man? Does he know the works of Abraham so that he cares more for others than for himself, that he looks beyond his house? He looks for the best of his house to help and minister to others. These are what we call the works of Abraham. And this is what emboldened him to ask on behalf of others before the living God. He'd shown hospitality to the Lord. The Lord will hear him. He knows it. He's convinced. Not only had the Lord brought the subject up and made him aware of it, but he felt that he could speak with the Lord about it. Did you know that in the business world, the, a, a, a good businessman, a man who's trying to close the deal, wouldn't dare try to put the terms of a proposal or an offer for a sale before, had he not shown some kind of hospitality. Even if it is just the minimum, let me offer the customer a cup of coffee. 
At least do something. Treat him nice. At least greet him properly. Show, show some kind of kindness. And most deals are put together after they've gone to dinner and after the dinner check has been picked up by the other guy. You know, even the heathen know the wisdom of this one. These are called the works of Abraham. It's amazing to me, though. We'll go out to try to do the work of God, and we think that we can get away with doing the works of God and extending no hospitality. You cannot accomplish the work of God without putting your best out. Once you show that you're willing to put your best out to serve others, to provide for them, then the Lord will hear what you have to say and hear your suggestions about how to get the ministry done. Because I guarantee you the Lord is a whole lot more interested about saving those people and ministering to those people than you ever dreamed of. And the only way that you can get in tune with where he's at, because he put his best out for us. In fact, the way he describes the invitation to us, he calls them feasts. He has set feasts before those he goes to minister to. And we are invited to come to the feasts of the Lord. And this is the feast of Abraham. And we have to learn how to do that. We have to learn how to serve feasts, to put our best out. Then he says, now you understand what I'm doing. Yes, you can work with me and let's, let's consult together. How best can we minister to them? What do you think? I have these ideas. What, what do you think? How can we best serve these others? And in the case, that's the reason why we have Abraham dialoguing with the Lord about the issues of how many righteous would be down in Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the background teaching that's given on this, and this is where we get the ancient thing of what we call the measure of the minion. Everybody know what minion is? The measure of the ten. The Lord has said to, and this is where we've learned it from, the Lord has said that if a city has ten righteous in it, that the city shall be spared. There may be a lot of unrighteousness going on in that city, but for the sake of ten, the Lord is that full of that much mercy. He'll preserve and somehow continue to extend mercy and forgiveness and continue to work for the sake of ten. And there were five cities associated with the complex we call Sodom and Gomorrah. It was actually five cities that were clustered together. And so Abraham began to negotiate, and the first thing that he began to say was, what if there's, down in Sodom, what if there's 50? What if there's 10 in each of the cities? Will you destroy the whole place, Lord? No. No, even though there's five cities, if there's 50, no. And then he drops to the number of 45. And what he was appealing to was, Lord, what if there's nine and there's just one missing, but you're there. You know, you're there. Don't you count? Can't you count as one of them too, Lord, along with the other nine? He said, if there's 45, I'll not destroy it. And then he says, well, no, what, 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 okay, we've got five cities. Now, what... What if, not all the cities, but what if we've got, um, what if uh, four of the cities have the righteous and one doesn't? What, in other words, if they're all together and there's four of the cities that have the righteous and, and the other city doesn't, what, will you destroy everybody because of that? In other words, if there's ten in the four cities and 
but there's none in that last. And he said, no, I'll not do it then. Okay, well, let's, let's kind of work that down a little bit. You know, what about three out of five? What if there's 10 righteous men in three cities? And then down to, what if there's just two of the cities, two of the five, not the majority, but two of the five? Well, how about that? And then finally, what if there's only one city? One out of that whole complex of five. One has the 10. What, will you do it then? No. I won't. And there are three catchwords that he uses as he works down here. And if you'll look there very quickly, if you look at the dialogue there at the end of chapter 18, he, each time he does this, the first time he speaks to him, he says, he speaks honorably of the Lord. Lord, you're a great and awesome God. You are judge of the whole earth. And he approaches the Lord, if you will, putting his best foot forward by describing the greatest attributes of God. And whenever you're negotiating with a fellow and you're trying to get on his good side, you will always be complimentary of his attributes. You want to approach the Lord? Yeshua said, if you want to approach the Lord, why don't you start by speaking and saying, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom is great and awesome. How about we start first with recognizing who we're talking to? I'm not just talking to anybody. I'm talking to you, Lord. You are mighty and great. You're judge of the whole earth. And so he speaks to his best side. Then then he humbles himself. Oh, but I look, I, I can't believe I'm even talking to you. I'm just dust and ashes. I'm I, I'm nowhere even compared to you. So you humble yourself before him. And we see that element of the negotiation. And then it breaks down into the three areas where it says, well, suppose there's only 40. And then he is, now Lord, don't, don't be angry. Don't, you know, you know, don't, don't react to me. Just hear me out. And then finally he says, can you believe this? I'm talking to God. You know, he's humbling himself. And he gets all the way down to 10. And then at the last moment, he says, um, I'm, I'm speaking. I, I'll only speak one more time. But I, I recognize I'm speaking to you. And then he says, don't be angry, please. <laughs> and he's almost pleading with him. He said, suppose there's only 10. He's not leveraging God. He's approaching him with kindness. He's being careful. How can the Lord resist that? I tell you, he can't. If you will approach the Lord, recognizing who he is, humbling yourself, entreating the Lord for who he is, petitioning him and and asking him to please, would you consider? I'm I'm not trying to upset you, Lord. I'm I'm, I'm not bringing my haughtiness to offend you. Suppose you could do this. What do you think, Lord? You know what? The Lord can't turn that down. He can't. And that's what the kind of relationship he wanted with Abraham. I want you joined with me. I want to be joined with you. I want us to work together. I want us to understand how we're going to do things together. That's the kind of working relationship. I don't know of a man 
in the professional world that doesn't want a similar kind of working relationship with his colleagues, with his customers, a real understanding with them. So that when the customer calls him, gee, I'd really like to have this, get it for him. (laughs) You know, get it. Let's do it. Well, well, I really need to be paid this. This is the fair price. Okay, we'll pay you. We'll, we'll get you the fair price. You know, that's the kind of relationship we want. One that's a working relationship that makes sense. Not one of these one-sided deals that ends up in a lot of difficulty. So what we see here is this tremendous little negotiation that sets the stage for the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe that as we go back and we examine that passage and ask ourselves those questions and put ourselves in that setting, sitting there in the heat of the day and looking up, feeling the feelings, having the lunch there with him, listening, and so forth, I think that it's one of the most intimate passages of Scripture that gives us a sense of what it's like to be in the presence of God and God to receive us and and we, we be in good stead and get to work with the Lord and be with the Lord. and And you know what? It happens every day. To a spiritual man. Because a spiritual man has lunch with the Lord every day. He has dinner with him every day. He gets up with him every day. Every day, every little thing that happens in a spiritual man's life, it's walking with the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, recognizing the presence of the Lord. And it's just like this conversation. And oh, by the way, the Lord then comes up to that spiritual man and he says, hey, by the way, i got a couple of things working, and I wanted to fill you in on what's going on. I'm not going to hold anything back from you. And thus the man walks with the Lord, with a sense of where the Lord's going. And he's a participant in this life and in this walk. And that's what I see as the relationship of Abraham to the Lord, the friend of God. Now we come to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an interesting story. Like I said, it's a story that's well known by the world. And the story begins out, as we read there in in, um, verse 20, chapter 18, verse 20. It says, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Now, we all know that the in our world that we have taken from the name of this city, Sodom, and we use that word to define the most aberrant, disgusting, perverse form of improper behavior that a person can do. This city and its behavior has become the definition for the whole world, all cultures, all generations of terrible behavior and surely a city that deserves judgment. And in fact, when God speaks of not only this judgment but future judgments, he always makes reference to, when he talks about future cities that may be judged, that it would have been better for you to have been in Sodom and Gomorrah than to be in this city for what it's about to receive. And I'm certain that you have heard the expression used by some modern-day speakers and prophets who said that if God doesn't come down here and judge this country that we live in, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah because we have a sense of that what's going on in our country is probably worse 
than what we have heard and understood that was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if you follow through the rest of the story, it's pretty pretty clear example. We've got a bunch of homosexuals running around and they raping people, attacking strangers. Um, this is not a safe, good place to be. Not even a good place to visit. And the Lord goes down to take a look at it for himself. And there's one absolutely bizarre moment in the story in which that Lot is trying to do his level best to somehow maintain some kind of level of righteousness in which that these citizens of Sodom, they want these angels who have come into Lot's house, they want them to come out so they can have sexual relations with them. And they're challenging Lot at his house. And somehow, and I, I don't know where we put this in the category of righteousness. I don't know where this fits in the big spectrum of doing good. But somehow he thinks it would be wiser if he were to give up his two daughters to them. I mean, that's how bizarre this story is. But I want you to back up for a moment. I want you to read that verse again. Chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. We already know about the second part. Their sin is exceedingly grave. What outcry? The Lord said he heard an outcry. What outcry? What I don't remember anywhere in here in the scripture that somebody in Sodom and Gomorrah cried out to God. What what outcry? He said I've heard this outcry. And if we were to sit here and assemble I I'd be hard pressed to tell you what I don't know what outcry. I didn't I, I didn't hear an outcry. The Lord said he heard an outcry. Abraham didn't hear the outcry. He didn't know about this. He's been told about it the first time. Abraham's a good man. He's a friend of God, walking with God. He's just up the road. He's just up the area. He didn't hear no outcry. Lot never mentioned this. Lot was living down there. Hey, you, you don't ever hear in any conversation that Lot says, Oh, good, finally heard somebody heard the outcry. He never heard no outcry. And one of the great questions that's asked by the sages is they say, what outcry? What cry is God referring to? Because then people down there, they were doing that with glee. You know, like today, in our world today, you know, when people are talking about an alternate lifestyle and, and uh, homosexual behavior and all that, they, no, nobody, nobody's crying out and saying, hey, this, you know, some righteous people say, that's terrible what they're doing. But those people are down there participating and nobody's crying out. In fact, they're saying, hey, this is consensual. This don't hurt nobody. Leave us alone. We can, We should have the right to go and do what we want to do. What outcry? What outcry is coming from there? What is it the Lord is referring to when he says, I've heard the outcry, and that's the reason why I've come down here? 
Now I'm going to go see if it's true. I'm going to go see for myself. We live in a world today that is a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we, like in that day, are having a real hard time. We can't quite hear the outcry. Now, I guarantee you God's hearing it. God hears the outcry. But we, even we citizens here in our country, in this world today, we have a hard time hearing it. We don't quite hear the outcry. That such injustices were taking place. That maybe others didn't hear the cry. But the Lord heard the cry. And the wonderful thing that we have about our God and the thing that I take solace in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that the God that I serve hears that cry. And he comes down to the earth and he walks and treads upon the dust of this earth to see for himself what is going on. And he intends to do something about it. And we're not going to put up with it anymore. And you and I live in the days that the same God who came down to have lunch with Abraham comes down to have lunch with you and me and is informing us that things are not right. And I have heard an outcry. And he's going to do something about it. You can be assured. Now, I'm not sure exactly how much of a journey it is from our lunch place with the Lord until he comes down to where he's going to do his business. But I do know this, that when he gets ready to do his business, there's a whole bunch of you and I, we're going to have to get out of the way. He's going to inform us and explain to us, it's time for you to leave. I'm going to get you out of here because I got some other business to do. Where's the outcry in our country? What, you know, we, we all know what's happening. Where, where's the outcry of the injustice taking place? And like the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah in ancient who sat back and we're wondering what was going on. We live in a country in which uh, we, we, our, us, fellow citizens, we're sitting back and we're just kind of watching CNN and MSNBC and all this and watching this injustice taking place and going, where's the outcry? The Lord hears it and the Lord is going to do something about it. And that maybe is one of the reasons why we ought to really pay attention to when the Lord talks about his coming back, making references to Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the rest of the story when the judgment came, that he did, took those, the Lord gathered up Lot and his daughters and his wife and literally by the hand to drag them out of the place. And you know the story how Lot went that night. He went to his future son-in-laws, the ones that were supposed to marry his daughters, the, one, the ones that were to be part of his family. And he went to him and he says, come on, we got to get out of here. The Lord's going to judge this place. And the scripture says 
They thought he was joking. You're jesting. And we live in a world right now that if you go into your neighbor or your family member and you say, brethren, friends, family, man, this place is getting worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Injustice is going on like unbelievable proportions. And the Lord's going to not, he's, he's fed up with this and he's in an outcry and he's going to be coming down here to judge this place. And man, we ought to get the heck out of Dodge here quick. They think you're joking. You're, you're joking. There's a lot of other parallels too. Right down to... When it's time to leave, even some of us, we may be tempted to look back. I don't know what we're looking back for. I don't know what it is that we're going to be missing about it. But some of us still aren't quite convinced. Some of us are not quite convinced God really is that upset and he's really going to judge it that much. Yes, he is. He's real upset. I mean, he told Abraham what he was going to do. If you don't know about this, when's the last conversation you had with the Lord? When's the last time you had lunch with the Lord? Because he'll tell you. He'll tell you what he's getting ready to do. He's real serious about this. I think he's real fed up. And I think that we ought to heed the words of Yeshua when he talks of his second coming. And he says, hey, guys, remember Lot's wife. When it's time to go, it's time to go and don't look back. Because this is going to be a lot worse than you ever dreamed. Because this outcry is a lot louder than you heard. And the Lord's had enough. We serve a wonderful God who gives us promises of life. But he is also God of truth and justice, and he's not going to put up with that. And we live on the bullseye of Sodom and Gomorrah in this world. And everything that is taking place, from the events that are taking place in Israel that we see and are witnessing to the things that are taking place in our own country right now today, in the very days that we're living, Every one of them speaks to the same issue that was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Injustices are taking place. And we need to be separate from those things. And then we need to be planning. We're not going to be around here much longer. Now, I don't know exactly how long it takes for the Lord to walk from where Abraham is down there to Sodom and Gomorrah. But it ain't far. And it's not an uphill trip. So I think that we ought to be very attentive to the things happening in our world and asking the Lord, what, what do you want us to do, Lord? And oh, by the way, are there any righteous down there, Lord, that we need to make sure we get out of there? Lord, could you hold off until we could get the last of those out of there? We need to go down and make sure that we got the righteous out of here and be a lot more concerned about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the living Torah. Thank you that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces and divides between the soul and the spirit, between thoughts and intents of the heart. And I would ask, Lord, that your word would do surgery on our souls and find out where we're really at and circumcise our hearts unto you and cut away the flesh of this world and leave only that which belongs to you so that we might be yielded to righteousness and truth. Our confidence is in you, Lord, that justice will be done. And we'll look to you for your hand in that. And Lord, help us to be attentive to those of the righteous who need to be delivered, who need someone to go down, get them by the hand and get them out of there and to warn them. Now, we know what the great plan is, Lord. You've told us. You've told us what you're going to do. Help us. Give us courage, Lord. Make us wise under your plan, and our confidence will be in you, Lord. 
So I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for the story about our father Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. And we thank you in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Line and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.linelamb.net. Thank you.